0: of beginning my story with a bell. I'm gonna strike it one more time, and this time, as I do, I'd like for you to close your eyes, if you would, and then to listen to the bell and see if you can mark the precise moment when you can no longer hear the bell, when it decays, and then what's following, okay? I want to have you reflect just for a moment on the quality of awareness that was involved when you were listening to the bell as it decayed. What was the kind of awareness that is invested in listening to the sound of a bell as it decays? And then what's the kind of awareness or sense of consciousness or presence that's involved when you no longer hear the bell? What's left after that? Now, I realize there was a little bit of commotion going on. There are people who are dutifully working and they need to get home. Um, But it's an experiment to do on your own, to investigate the quality of awareness, the quality of consciousness, as it follows the sound of a bell, as the bell decays and then vanishes. What's left? A big part of my story that I'm going to tell you has to do with that very phenomenon, with that very experience, that quality of awareness. It's as though silence uh, plays a major figure in this story, even though I'm going to use a lot of words. So here it goes. Believe it or not, my first major ambition in life was to be a rock and roll drummer. You have to imagine it's 1989, and uh, I have quite a bit more hair than I do now. have a long ponytail. I kind of look like uh, David Grohl when he played with Nirvana. Remember that? You know, and he had long hair and he was sitting in the back and kind of looked like a meathead drummer. You know, that was the way I kind of looked when I was a senior in high school. And I wanted to pursue a music career. And so I went to Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, thought that I would study music, music theory, music business. And kind of get networked into the music industry there. And I had a lot of friends who were doing that. In fact, I had a number of friends to this day who were pretty successful in doing that. Um, it was also kind of a good backup plan because if you want to be a serious musician, you know, you can't just really rely on getting the gig to make money, you know. So, music business was sort of the compromise that I had with my father, which was really great advice on his part. Well, I was cruising with this career ambition, but something happened along the way a very significant swerve during my sophomore year. And the swerve had been brewing for a while. It wasn't exactly a swerve. I probably want to call it a crisis. A uh, quarter-life crisis? Anybody ever heard of that? Quarter, anybody going through a quarter-life crisis right now? Um, all right, so this is especially for you, all right? How to have a quarter-life crisis and how to have it well is part of uh, what I want to convey. Well, what was going on with this quarter-life crisis? Or I didn't have the word for it at the time, but that's what I understood it retrospectively to be. I was having very serious troubles with a sense of motivation, but more importantly, a sense of comprehensive meaning in my life. I had grown up in Anderson, Indiana, and a a kind of a small town in central Indiana, and a, Conservative church, Pentecostal church, wonderful family, amazing family, amazing network of human beings that I grew up in. But the church was pretty tight, was um, was conservative, and I was kind of on the margins. I was uh, interested in music. I was interested in rock and roll. Have you ever seen the movie Footloose? All right, that was kind of my life in a way, uh, and I had experienced being somewhat ostracized by that community because of my various ambitions. Uh, So much uh, so that I actually uh, experienced profound alienation and began as I was transitioning to college to seriously question whether I had a religious faith at all. Um, But more deeply than that, whether God existed, whether there was any sort of comprehensive meaning, whether there was a ground, an ultimate orientation to human life, And this wasn't just simply a kind of intellectual um, query for me. This was something that was affecting me at the level of mood, at the level of feeling. And it was very deflating, and I found myself almost entirely without gas. And so I was experiencing a kind of listlessness and boredom. But at the same time, I grew interested in people who had experienced this kind of crisis of faith, or what I might call a kind of collapse of worldview. I was very interested in people who have experienced this themselves and tried to cobble together some sort of life in the face of that. So I became interested in my academic studies in a way that I hadn't when I had originally arrived. So I was reading figures from philosophy and literature, especially from the 19th and 20th century, Uh, people like Thomas Hardy and Albert Camus. These are people who were kind of working with the question of what does one do when one faces something of the tragic nature of life and the absurdity of life? How does one live life authentically and responsibly when there isn't really a solid ground under you? You might think that this was a bit depressing, but actually, I mean, it was that, and there was a lot of anxiety and there was a lot of confusion that went with this, but was also quite liberating, because I began to consider, well, what would it be like to actually construct a life in the face of the sense of void that had some richness to it, that had some purpose. Even though it didn't have comprehensive purpose, I could cobble this together. So this was very freeing. I felt the sense of courage and a kind of heroism that was involved in this. So there was some excitement. And then something else was happening. I was absolutely throttled by the fact that I could be in a classroom studying literature and talking about these sorts of things with other people. This was a survey of British literature course. I'm not talking about core curriculum right? Uh, a core course was just throttling me. And I began to think, well, maybe actually I want to pursue a life of studying literature, of studying philosophy. Maybe I wanted to be a teacher. just couldn't believe a classroom could afford that kind of space. Well, I ended up declaring an English major. I studied, I studied some philosophy. I had pretty much, at least what I had thought at that point, had exhausted my kind of religious background. I graduated in 1994, and I got what was, at the time, just felt like a really posh job at an advertising agency. And I opted for the advertising agency, not because I really wanted to write advertisements. Actually, I ended up banging my head against the wall within three months of doing this. But I I could actually have a job writing. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to bide my time. I'm going to try to find a way to write, maybe I'll become a ghost writer, maybe I'll become a freelancer or whatever else, maybe I'll go to grad graduate school at some point and study English literature, I wasn't quite sure. But this seemed like a good time for me. But something else was happening. It turns out that the quarter life crisis that sort of erupted um, when I was 18 and 19 was really only getting started and at this point, About three or six months into this job, um, I began to allow myself to be more fully haunted by the question of God again. I realized that I hadn't quite dealt with that. And I began to become somewhat open, very reticently, but somewhat open to using this word to name the sense of mystery, the sense of presence, and the sense of silence that was beginning to infuse my everyday life, and I have to tell you that it was at this point that I found myself deeply attracted to silence. I would get up very early in the morning, around four o'clock in the morning, and I would just—I would try to kind of figure out how to meditate. I would read books on meditation. I visited a couple of Zen centers. I visited a Quaker meeting. Um, so I was beginning to experiment with this and to journal, and I was having some pretty profound upheavals in my life. And so I was being lured by something. I was being formed by something, and I found myself progressively learning how to say yes, to actually fall into this, but I couldn't quite name it. And I was actually quite reticent to do so and to use some inherited language doing that. So silence. Now there's another layer to this story, and I have just simply to mention her name. Krista. This is my wife. My then girlfriend, my now wife of over 24 years. We're in our 25th year of marriage. High school sweethearts grew up together in Anderson, Indiana, went to prom together. And when I went to Belmont University, she transferred from Indiana University and went to Belmont with me. That's quite a commitment. I don't know how many of you actually kind of went to college, came here to college with you know, a special person, but if you do that, you're kind of saying something important to one another, right? Okay, well, you know, this is quite a gamble, here we go. (laughs) So we were committed, we actually had a pretty mature relationship, a great friendship, and we felt that we were in it for the long haul. And so through my changes, you know, this sort of upheaval in college, she was there. She was shocked when I, Went down into the courtyard by the bell tower and exclaimed to her very excitedly, Krista, I've changed my major. I thought she would be very excited about this because change your major from pursuing the life of music, you're going to study English, you would be a professor, an academic. Sounds like a more responsible thing to do, you know? That was not at all her response. Her response was, and we are here, why? That wouldn't be the first time that would happen, as it turns out. Well, after the year I graduated in 1994, we got married. And um, by the time that I was working in my job, she was working in the corporate world. And about six months into the job, as I told you, three to six months, I was beginning to feel quite unsettled. My quarter-life crisis had not yet kind of presented itself. And I began to suggest to her that maybe I needed to find another line of work. That the trajectory I'm on isn't necessarily the one that I should be on long term, and that I need some time to kind of figure things out. And I began to even throw out some ideas, like, you know, I just feel so drawn just to be, you know, quiet and simple. And, you know, and she said, Do you want to quit your job? I said, No, no, it's not quite like that. Maybe I need to find some job where I could do that. She was getting disturbed by this. Could you imagine, you know, you're newly married. Here's this guy who's kind of you know flipping out on you, you know? And um, things were quite tense between us. Well, I continued to work uh, for a couple of more months. And then I had this, I, I guess, this inspiration. I was ripe for it, but there was a bit of inspiration. It was a Saturday morning, and we had a load of wood that was dumped at the edge of our apartment complex. We had a fireplace. And my objective was really just to move the pile of wood and to stack it by our apartment. And so I did this. It was a brisk uh, morning, and I was going back and forth, and about a third of the way into this process, I noticed something very, very interesting that not only had my body, in a sense, taken on its own life, its own rhythms, and this stacking, and this moving. But my the thought patterns and all of the sort of percolating thoughts and sensations and so forth had completely dissolved. And I was utterly one with the work. I was just simply moving wood. I was not thinking. I was not harassed by my thoughts, by my doubts. I was just completely absorbed. And my work in what I would call a sustained flow state. It was like silence. It was living silence. It was moving silence. It was this beautiful choreography of just simple activity of stacking. And I realized that something was happening to me, that it was the combination of the repetitive manual labor and my openness to this that was allowing for something to occur. So this gave me the idea that, well, if I were going to pursue another line of work, at least for a period of time, it should be something involving simple manual labor. I was also quite attracted to this because some of the stuff that I was reading about Zen monks or old Christian monks engaged in labor and prayer and so forth, something about that really appealed to me. And probably had I born in an, was born in a different time and a different generation, I would have probably ended up somewhere in a cave, or in a desert, or an abandoned bus somewhere in silence. But that was not to be. It was after this when I began to ask Krista, what would you think if I just did some other kind of work for a while? And I'll never forget, it was a turning point in our relationship. Krista and I, we don't argue much. But she picked up this lamp that was sitting on the table that was given to us by my Aunt Donna for our wedding. Sorry, Aunt Donna, if you see this video at some point. She holds it up over her head, and she says, I guess we won't be needing nice things like this anymore, and throws it. Now, there's a dispute to this day. I asked her about it. I asked her if she would like to change her version of the story this morning. She's sticking to hers, I have mine. I say she threw it at me. She says she dropped it. in any case, it landed on the parquet floor and broke into a thousand pieces, and every now and again, we will argue you know in a fun way about what really happened, sort of like in a Christmas story where there's a dispute between a husband and wife about how that lamp broke in the front window, you know all right, so that's that was it and The shattering of that was a deafening silence. It was a different kind of silence, of course, but it was a shocking one. And she said, I have to go to work. And she went to work. I called in sick. And I said that I will meet her for lunch. And I met her for lunch, and we ate at this restaurant. And we sat across from one another. And she said to me, after we got our water whatever, she said, Brian. You're not happy, and we're not going to be happy if you're not going to be happy. And I don't know what to do. I'm willing to, I will take up another job if I have to. And in the moment she said that, you know, I just began to break down in tears. I couldn't believe that she was thinking that she would have to do something like that. But I was so moved and humbled by this gesture, I stopped her. I said, no, no, that's not that at all. I don't know what's going to happen, but I just have to find some other line of work. I would never ask that of you, and I just can't believe that you would offer that. And it was an amazing thing for her to do that, but she let me go in that. She not let me go from the relationship, but she let me have the space to begin to explore this and trusting that this was not going to be disastrous for our relationship, but somehow kind of consenting to this was going to allow something new in our relationship. Maybe she just felt desperate and didn't know what else to do too. Well, that was an enormous liberation. Um, It was about a month later when I actually settled upon what it is that I would do, and I had this inspiration. I was in my car in a parking garage during my lunch break. It was a Monday. And I thought, I am going to call churches because I could be reasonably assured that they're quiet, they're sacred spaces, and I'm going to try to do manual labor there with painting, janitor, I don't know, whatever. I'm gonna do something. So I rushed into my office, shut the door, opened up the phone book, and started cold calling churches. And I looked under Episcopal churches because I had visited a couple of those and that seemed you know, reasonably interesting to me at that time. And I knew that they were quiet places. And I didn't get very far down the list. You know, it was alphabetized, phone book, right? Imagine that, phone book. All Saints, St. Saint Anne's, St. Andrew's, St. Bartholomew's. It was down to my fourth or fifth church. And I called. And Rapalma Wilson answered the phone, and she's the office manager, she said, may I help you? And I said, my name is Brian Robinette, and um, I'm calling to see if you have any opportunities, in your janitorial staff, you know, real sheepishly. It's the first time, on, or only the first few times I've ever asked something like this. And Rapalma said, well, it's very interesting that you called because earlier today, We had decided in our staff meeting that we were going to hire somebody full-time, that the contract help that we're getting isn't sufficient. We needed to hire somebody full-time. Can you tell me about your experience? And I don't know quite what I said. I mumbled a little bit, but I got to the point. I said, well, I don't have a lot of experience. I, I work in advertising right now, but I will be the best janitor you've ever had. I can learn it really quick. You know. And I began to explain to her that what I really needed to do was something like simple labor, and that I would commit to working there for a year. That I didn't know what was beyond that, but I could commit to working, and you will have the cleanest church you've ever had. So she invited me to come in, and I had an interview with her and with Father Ian. Father Ian had this look and I had his glasses over like this, and he was looking at me, and I came in with a tie and a vest, and he began to ask me questions. You know, So what's your background? What's your experience? And so forth, and I was fumbling. I was not doing well. Father Ian was extremely skeptical. He thought I was a bit off, which probably wasn't terribly inaccurate. Uh, wondered what motives I may have had, and, at one point, I just decided to go for broke, and I said, Father Ian, it's, it's like this. I just need to be a monk for a while. And he immediately responded to that. He, he thought, I, I, I think I see. Well, we'll talk. Ripalma and I will talk about it, and we'll get back to you. I went away thinking that I didn't get the job, but it was just a couple hours later when Rapalma called me very excitedly. She was a true believer for me. She's the one who convinced him, pushed him over the edge, and I was offered the job, and I took it. I put in my two weeks notice at the advertising agency and took the job as a janitor at St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in Nashville, Tennessee. I cut my hair. Um, had a buzz cut and all i wanted to do was to work anonymously i wanted to be a monk i wanted to be anonymous i wanted to mop i wanted to sweep i wanted to clean and that was it and just be to pray whatever that was to be silent to listen and that's what i did and i uh worked there for ex- almost exactly a year and during that time uh my favorite job was mopping. I would mop on Monday mornings, and then I would mop again on Friday evenings, Friday afternoons. And usually Friday afternoons were really quiet, and I would be with with the mop, and I would, the gym, they had a, they had a gym, and I would listen to the silence of the gym, and I would just sort of stroke the mop back and forth, and I would kind of pause between, and I would just sort of walk and savor the whole thing. I did this with a lot of my work, and I spent a lot of time in meditation, But I would just sort of kind of allow myself to enter into this very deep flow state where, in a sense, I disappear in the work and allow it to happen as it will happen. So it was very purifying. It was very energizing. And I worked there for a year. During this time, I should mention one other person. During this time, I think I had enough sense to reach out for a wisdom figure. I didn't think I should do this all on my own. I had a great companion in Krista. My parents were very supportive. I had friends who were worried, but ultimately supportive. But I reached out for a wisdom figure. And I had heard about the tradition of getting some spiritual direction in the Christian tradition. But this is also in other traditions where you would have a spiritual mentor, you know, your personal Yoda. You know, you could go and uh, get some advice or, or learn something of significance from somebody who has more experience and more deeply trained in, than you. And I got in contact with a man named Father Nolan, who had at one time been a monk in a, at a monastery in Conyers, Georgia. He left the monastery in the late 60s, became a, uh, he was a priest, he was also a practicing psychologist at Vanderbilt University, and was also a parish doing parish priestly work in Nashville. And he took me on. And he met with me, and the first time that we met, he said, I'd be very happy to provide some spiritual direction, but I want you to know a few things about the kind of spirituality to which I'm accustomed. Um, and so if you would, I would like for you to make a retreat at a monastery in, um, in Kentucky, at Gethsemane Abbey, where the great Thomas Merton uh, was. I want you? If you, Some of you may have heard of him to make a retreat there. It's a Cistercian Trappist monastery, and there you will learn a lot about my kind of style of spirituality. If you like that, then we should have some rapport. And of course, I loved it, you know? And I went almost like the next weekend, and I came back, I was so excited. And um, anyway, we developed this very interesting relationship where he was a kind of wisdom figure for me. And there were a couple of things that he told me that, that were crucial in my life, the one was that he could see that I was torn, because on the one hand, I was so attracted to the monastic life, to silence, to the contemplative life. But on the other hand, I'm married and newly married. And he saw the struggle with me. Krista felt the struggle, and he just discerned that. And he asked me questions about that. And he simply said that, he put it this way. He says, when I was a novice master at the, at the monastery, when I was in it, I knew immediately when I saw a monk. And when I look at you, I see a monk. You're a monk. But like me, you can have the monastery in your heart and it goes with you. And furthermore, your wife is very special. It's very important. This is an important relationship. And I want to encourage you to ensure that whatever is happening with you, however however profoundly solitary this seems, to ensure that what is happening to you is happening for the benefit of her and your future family, if you have one. This was a huge thing to be told. And I immediately blushed and cried and realized that I had been actually living somewhat in two lanes. So I committed anew to be devoted to Krista, to be devoted to also the kind of life that that entails being perhaps a father and in whatever I would end up doing in my life to be the monastery or to be the kind of contemplative life and no matter what setting I find myself in. There was one last bit of advice that he gave me and I'm nearing the end of my story and I'll wrap it up here. And that is he he knew that I was academically inclined he also knew that I was beginning to develop something like a more robust and coherent vocabulary that was theological. I could use the word God without embarrassment. I could use the word God without thinking twice. He also saw that I was becoming more attuned to, to a more communal form of life. I was out sort of Han Solo-like. And he he, he saw that I was developing a taste for things like ritual and community. And he very gently suggested that the life of Catholicism is not the only, but it is a beautiful expression or avenue or channel for this that you are engaged in. And he began to teach me a little bit about what sacraments are and what the liturgy is, and I began to attend Mass. So it was a combination of these sorts of things um, that led me to the discernment that actually maybe I want to pursue the study of theology. And so he said, you know, there is this college, this university in northern Minnesota. It's a monastery, but it's also got a nice master's program at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. Why don't you go and give it a, a visit? And I did, and I visited the place and was immediately bowled over the, the environment, the pastoral environment, the, the rhythm of life, the monastic community, the rich Catholicism. And little by little, I became became immersed or saturated with that. Learning a language, but also discovering how my kind of instinctive uh, sense for silence was actually manifesting and percolating through that kind of life. And before you knew it, I was just sort of eventually going to become Catholic, which I did when I went to study um, my 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 PhD at Notre Dame. I became Catholic in 1999, and Krista, became Catholic a couple of years after that. We raised our our children in the Catholic Catholic Church. So there's a lot that has happened since then. But one little coda to this is that in just the same way that Krista, at this very crucial time, and I want to stress the importance of other people in my journey, because even though it was, in, in many ways, a deeply solitary one, It was also touched by people around me implicitly and explicitly, and at times very, very powerfully. And for Krista, in the context of our marriage and our friendship, to release me in a way, to pursue this, to give permission, and to take the risk in doing this, was an enormous gift to me. And the flip side of that is what Father Nolan um, uh, pointed me uh, towards which was back to her and the context uh that uh, comes out of that so there's a way in which it's uh, sort of book ended um this so having wisdom people and companions in my life as ways of of the manifestation what I would I understand god's providence to be the second thing that I want to say and kind of summing this up is um, a, a number of you have already or will experience periods of crises. They don't necessarily have to be the kinds of existential crises that I've just described, but you might find yourself at times with a feeling of being shattered or not being able to quite compose your life in terms of a sense of meaning or framework. You might question whether whether life has meaning or whether it has an ultimate goal. The most interesting thing as a a teacher is when I ask students, what is it that they're most interested, what's their biggest question, many of them will say variations of the following. I want to know what the meaning of my life is. I want to know what is meaningful about life, my vocation or whatever else. So the chances are that if you haven't experienced it yet, you will experience these upsurges of intuition or maybe incidences in your life which invite you to explore some radical alternatives to the trajectory you're on. And this can be very upsetting because all of you are here because you're really good at doing things like exams and going through the hoops and so forth. You're very accomplished young people. And so to actually take on this kind of crisis can feel like it's going to destroy or unravel everything that you've been working towards all along. And here's what I have to say to you, let it, is to let, let that happen, is to not be so, so focused on some sort of goal that you think that you have or other people have of you that you can't take sufficient time to allow yourself to be deeply confused, to not really know what you're doing, and to really not know what you're doing, to have A crisis more fully is what I'm suggesting, to have a more complete crisis where you lean into it. You're not generating crisis or unnecessary drama in your life. You're actually leaning in and allowing the confusion to be some sort of potential source of wisdom for you, to dwelling with that and having the kind of patience for doing that. So give yourself the chance to do that, and that might mean telling other people around you that you need to do that, and that they need to hopefully support you, parents or friends, people like that. As you do that, and if you do this, be sure to be on the lookout for people who can serve as wisdom figures for you. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be saints. They don't have to... Uh, have a former life in a monastery, but they can be people who can give you some perspective about yourself and see certain trends to point you in a more healthy or wholesome or integrative fashion. So wisdom, people. And then finally, you'll hear uh, a lot on this campus, um, you know, finding God in all things, right? You know, find God in all things, sort of the, the motto. Um, I like to think about this with a bit of a variation, and that is finding God in nothing. Finding God in nothing in particular. I don't mean uh, a negative nothing here. I don't mean sort of a blandness. What I mean is the space in between, the space between things, the space between breaths, the space between identities, the space between this thing, and that thing, and so forth. To actually be attuned and patient to dwell and to trust into that gracious, loving nothing is a part of not just enduring or coping times of crisis, but actually flourishing in them. So I'm going to ring the bell one more time and see if you can't trace the sound as it decays and just hold for two or three seconds what it sounds like when you can no longer hear the bell and let that be one of your lasting memories of my talk. Thank you for your attention.